Okay. Well, here we are in the, uh, the last week of our, our, our mini, mini sermon series. Um, it's always weird doing a mini series because it's so quick. I, I feel like I, I have the first letter or the first series, and it's kind of like introducing the series. And then y- y- last week was kind of the middle one, and now I'm ending it. I'm wrapping the series up. Uh, so it's always weird doing a very short series like this. Um, and we've been looking at the letters of John, but I, I think that even though they're, they're quite small, there's a lot in there. Uh, there's a lot to take in. There's a lot to ruminate and think over. Um, today we're looking at the shortest of all three letters. Uh, we're looking at 3 John. Uh, it is the shortest book in the Bible. We talked about last week that even though uh, 2 John actually has uh, less verses, 3 John is actually the shortest verse, um, or sorry, the shortest book in the Bible because it only has 219 total words. And in 219 words, there's a lot to be looked at. I'm going to turn it into 20-something minutes of conversation. Uh, and I think that this is a good reminder that even though it is the smallest book, even though it's sort of at the end uh, of the book, it's a good reminder that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful for teaching and for preaching. All scripture is useful for studying. Uh, and that even in only 219 words, there is much that we can learn from this scripture. Uh, so in a similar way as last week, I'm going to start by reading the whole book again. Uh, I'm going to start by reading the whole book of 3 John. And just like last week, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. I promise no one will touch you. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And what I'm going to ask you this, though, uh, this week when you close your eyes, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to take yourself back 2,000 years ago. I want to take yourself back. I want you to get rid of the cell phones and the technology and the fact that I have a microphone or we're sitting indoors under a roof. Uh, I want to take yourself back 2,000 years ago. And I want to sit yourself at the end of the first century, where you gathered in your small little house church. You've gathered with your friends and your family, the people in your community, the little house church, and you have heard, the reason you're gathering is because you've heard that the Apostle John has written a letter to you in your church. He's written a letter, and that it's going to be read in your church. And you're excited to show up to your tiny little house church to hear what this, this amazing apostle, this very well-known apostle, you're excited to hear what he has to say to your little community. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes now and try to quiet your mind, quiet your heart, and simply listen to the words of Scripture as they are written. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, just as it is well with your soul. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. They've testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God, for they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing in spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges, he refuses to welcome the friends and even so prevents those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. And we also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you their greetings. Greet the friends there, each of them by name. 
Amen. Now this last our section or this last book of John that we're going to look at is another letter. It's obviously another letter. It's, it's written clearly to a particular person, and it has a theme, and it has historical context. And so this is another letter of John, and so you can sense the personal nature of the letter. And just like the other two letters, this letter has a theme that comes up over and over. And we've already talked about it in the first and the second letter. We heard the same words again. We heard about truth, and we heard about love. We heard him say that he was excited to hear that you were walking in truth. He said he was so glad to see that you hadn't given up showing love and extending love and truth. And so he talks about truth and love again here in his third letter. And so we've already talked about that a bunch. And so I'm not going to talk too much about truth and love today, given that we talked about it last week and the week before. But I actually want to highlight something completely different this week. I don't want to highlight a particular theme, but I actually instead I want to look at three particular people. If you were listening well, or if you, if you listened well and heard well, uh, you heard three different people mention this letter, or three particular people. We had Diotrephes, we had Gaius, and we had Demetrius. So we had three particular people named in this letter. Now, each of them is given varying amounts of time in the letter. Uh, some of them are only discussed very briefly. But I want to look at each three of these people and see what John says about them. And so today, we talk about three guys. We're going to start not with the first person that was mentioned, because that would be too easy. We're going to actually start with the second person that was mentioned in this letter, Diotrephes. So Diotrephes is mentioned in verse 9, and then from verses 9 to 11, he's actually talked about for that entire little bit. And it says, I'm going to read a different translation, but it says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. And so if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. So the first thing we see is that Diotrephes does not get a good reputation here. Diotrephes is not someone who is spoken well about. So the first point that I want to make today is don't be a Diotrephes. So, don't be Diotrephes. We see already that John has written to this church, but his, his letter was intercepted by Diotrephes. It, it says his letter was, was intercepted and by Diotrephes, who doesn't acknowledge John's authority. It says he doesn't acknowledge our authority. Now, when I was doing some research this week for it, I was looking as to, to why, why he would say that. And scholars aren't fully sure. They don't 100% agree. But what they think is that likely John wrote a letter, and Diotrephes, the leader of the church, took the letter and destroyed it. He took it and destroyed it so that no one could read it. And so scholars have no idea what that letter says. They have no idea what was in there because we don't have that letter. So they don't have any idea what John could have been talking about or what issues could have been going on. But they do know that the, 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 the letter never made it. The letter never got to the church where it was supposed to be. So Diotrephes took that letter, whatever he did with it, got destroyed it, got rid of it, uh, just hit it, whatever it was. That's all speculation. But some assume that that's the reason why John is actually writing to Gaius now. He's actually directed his letter to Gaius because he knows that if he writes another letter to the church, it's not going to get there. Diotrephes is just going to get rid of it. So whether that's the exact reason he's writing Gaius or not, that's a bit of speculation. What we do know is that Diotrephes liked the power that he had. That Diotrephes liked the power that he had. He didn't want to give it up. Diotrephes didn't like the idea of an outside person who's, who's John. He didn't like the idea of an outside person telling his church what they should be doing. 
Diotrephes was more concerned with, with autonomy of his church, and he pretended that refusing the letter from John was in defense of that truth and in defense of that autonomy, when really it's actually quite apparent Diotrephes just didn't want to give up any authority. He didn't want to give up any of his power, especially to the likes of John, this outsider. Verse 9 says that he says he likes to put himself first. Diotrephes liked being number one. He liked being the boss. He didn't want someone else to have more power in his church than he did. And this kind of pride, this kind of me first, this kind of I'm the boss attitude, especially from a church leader, forgets something so important about the church. It forgets that the head of the church is not Diotrephes, and the head of the church is not John, but that the head of the church is Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, not Diotrephes, not John, not, not me here at Avenue Road, not Jesse, not Ralph, not Shirley, and not even Fred with everything that he does for the church. None of them are the heads of the church. None of us are the heads of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Diotrephes, though, thought he was the head of the church. He's pretended that what he is doing by refusing John's letter is out of securing the truth when really it's out of securing his own selfish ambition. It's this kind of attitude that Lynn Anderson speaks of when she says, one brand of, and she uses quotes, faith. So one brand of faith subtly attempts to use others or even God for its own ends. But faith is not manipulation. Diotrephes was manipulating the truth. He was manipulating the church, and he was manipulating these things for his own gain and his own power. So the first thing that we see about Diotrephes is that he had too much pride and too much self-seeking ego for his own rights as the leader of the church. And the second thing that we see that we don't want to be Diotrephes for is because he was actually slandering and lying about the apostles. John says Diotrephes was talking wicked nonsense about us. That's my new thing. I like the idea of wicked nonsense. I'm just going to, whenever someone says anything heretical in grad school, I'm like, that's just wicked nonsense. Slandering and lying about the apostles. That's a tactic that people revert to when they're backed into a corner. Right? When you back someone into a corner, when, when they're, they're, they got their defenses up, they're terrified, they lash out in self-defense, and they lash out and they attack. And that's exactly what's happening here. It seems that Diotrephes would try anything to keep his authority. He would try anything, including lying about the apostles and slandering their message. So the second thing he's done wrong is he's lying and he's slandering people. The third thing that he does wrong is he refused to help the missionaries that came to the church. It says he refused to help the brothers. He refused to help the brothers. These are the traveling missionaries of the gospel. John says that they left and they didn't take any help from non-Christians. They left to talk about Christ. They left to tell people about the gospel message. And they're, so they're going place to place. They're going place to place. They might be carrying some of the letters. They might be carrying some of the, uh, the New Testament with them as they had it. They might be carrying things, but they're bringing the message, the gospel, place to place. And as they go, they rely on the churches that are there to support them. They rely on them for support, for food, for lodging, for a little bit of help, money along the way if they need it. But they're going from place to place, and they're not carrying much with them. And Diotrephes was turning them away. He was saying no. He refused to help those traveling missionaries. But not only that, not only did he refuse to help them himself as the leader of the church, he actually excommunicated anyone in his church that did help them. He was quite literally kicking people out of his church who were helping missionaries. That's unbelievable. Anyone from his church who was helping the missionaries or helping the brothers and sisters, he was kicking them out. He was excommunicating them. Anyone who disobeyed what Diotrephes said was kicked out of the church. Now that's a heck of an ego trip. Anyone who helps a missionary, bam, you're out of here. Anyone who disagrees with me, bam, you're out of here. Imagine the level of insecurity, selfish ambition, pride, and arrogance that leads to that type of an attitude. 
And we don't actually have to imagine very hard. We can just look at certain unnamed politicians who fire anyone who disagrees with them and who refuse to accept that they've lost an election. But I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in particular. Diotrephes has a sort of dictator mentality to him. He has a sort of, I'm in charge of everything. And John says this about it, and this is one of my favorite things that I've ever read. John says, I will remember him on my next visit. That's like the most excellent, subtle thing from John that he slips in. He says, basically he says, don't worry, I'll deal with him when I get there. That's on the same level as when you're a kid and you're being really bad at home and your mom says to you, just wait till dad gets home. That's on the same level of that. Just, I'll deal with him when I get home. And so imagine receiving that in a letter from John. Gaius opens this letter and he says, like, just read this from John. And imagine if you were Diotrephes and that was the word that was said to you. I would be afraid if I got that word. So the first guy that we look at in this little short letter, Diotrephes, not a great example. So don't be a Diotrephes. And the next person we're going to look at is the very last person that's mentioned in the letter. And he also gets the very least written about him. Verse 12 says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. So our second point here is that we should desire to be Demetrius. We desire to be a Demetrius. Now we don't know a whole lot about Demetrius. He's not mentioned elsewhere. There is another Demetrius mentioned in, da- in Acts, but there's nothing that indicates that those are the same two people. There's nothing that indicates they're the same person. So it's likely that they're, very, they're two very different people. And so what most scholars think about Demetrius, given we don't have much, they think that Demetrius was likely the bearer of the letter. So he was likely the one that was carrying the letter. So he was likely someone that John said, take this letter to Gaius, go give it to Gaius. Don't take it to the church, don't take it to Diotrephes, take it right to Gaius. So that's what some scholars think, that he was the letter bearer. The other side of scholars think that Demetrius might have actually been the subject of one of Diotrephes' slanderous tirades. So Demetrius might be someone that Diotrephes was saying, oh, this Demetrius guy, he's no good. Demetrius, he's, he's with those guys. John, they're all hooligans, kick him out, let's get rid of Demetrius. So they think he was either letter barrier or he was uh, a subject of one of these slanderous tirades. We're not sure about either one because there's not a whole lot of evidence to support it. But the point here is that Demetrius, if we read it, Demetrius is someone that has a great reputation. Demetrius is someone who is spoken highly of. He's actually three separate spots right here where he gets three separate very impressive testimonies. The first one is John writes. He says he is well spoken of by everyone. He says he is well spoken of by everyone. The second is from John. It says, and we also speak well of him. Me and my companions, we also speak well of him. Now John had a lot of authority and a testimony from John is quite a powerful testimony. It's like when someone writes you a letter of reference, John's letter of reference is a really powerful letter of reference. It means a lot for John to say, and we also speak well of him. So the second one is from John and his companions, and the third place where he gets a very impressive testimony is where it says, it is from the truth itself. So the truth itself testifies that Demetrius is a good and faithful person. Now John's thought, the commentary, or the commentator on this verse, he says, the Christian genuineness of Demetrius did not need human witness. The genuineness of Demetrius did not need human witness. It was self-evident. The truth that he professed was embodied in him so closely, his life did conform to that truth. 
So basically, John Stott says that Demetrius lived out the truth so well that the things that he said, you could see in every one of his actions. This truth that he professed was so obvious in how he lived his life out, and you could just see it. His actions lined up perfectly with his words. What he said and what he did went beautifully hand in hand. They lived in perfect harmony. So Demetrius had some very powerful testimony about him. And so given the, the great reputation that Demetrius has, we should all wish to have such a testimony about us from our brothers and our sisters. So the second person that we look at, Demetrius, we should say we can desire to be like Demetrius. We should desire to be like Demetrius. So finally, we come to the final person, the third person in this letter. The letter, or the person that the letter is actually addressed to, the person that this whole letter is written to, we come to Gaius. John has a lot to say about Gaius, a lot of good to say about Gaius. In verse 3, he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And he goes on in verse 5, he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, for these strangers as they are, who testify to your love for them before the church. The way that John speaks of Gaius, it seems that this third person we can say, it would be great to be like Gaius. It would be great to be like Gaius. Gaius, it seems, took a special delight in opening his home and opening his life to those, uh, not only that he knew, but to those out preaching the gospel, those strangers, those traveling missionaries, to people that he likely had never even met before, but that came bearing the Christian message. He opened his home for them, and he showed them love and tenderness and kindness. See, Gaius was showing hospitality at its realest form, or hospitality at its purest form. Hospitality is something that we see as, as quite important. It comes up in the Gospels, although we don't maybe see it right away. In Matthew 25, verse 40, and we talked about this a bit last week, we see that if we show hospitality and love to others, we show hospitality and love to the Lord himself. He says, whatever you do for those, you did for me. And later in verse 45, in the second section, or in the same section, he says, and if you fail to do that for others, you failed to do it for me. So he says, if we fail to show hospitality to others, if we fail to show love towards others, then we fail to show love toward Jesus. Hebrews talked about hospitality as well. In Hebrews 13 too, it says in showing hospitality to others, it says some have unwittingly entertained angels. So some have unwittingly entertained angels in just showing hospitality. Hospitality is something that we see over and over in the Gospels. And, and one of the things that we see Jesus doing all the time is inviting himself over to people's house for dinner. He invites himself over. He just says, I'm, we're going to so-and-so's for dinner. And I love there's this, this expectation that they're going to show up for dinner. And I mean, I feel like we, we could do that to a certain degree. Like, I, could, I feel like I could just say, uh, John and Louise, I'm coming for dinner tonight. And even if they didn't want me to come for dinner, they might feel obligated to. They might feel, well, I, I guess he's coming. We, we better go home and make something for him. And Jesus, all the time, he invites himself over for dinner. And it's just simply expected that hospitality would be shown. And hospitality was much more common in those days. It was more often that you would have someone just show up for dinner. Even in before my generation, so I don't know that this is true, but I've been told that before my generation, that was something that was also common. People would show up and just knock on your door, or just stop by your house. Now there's no way that would happen in today's culture. If you don't get a text first, they're not coming. That's just how it works. Even when I go to pick someone up, if I go to pick up Ryan and I say, Ryan, I'll be there at 9, I don't just show up. I still text him and say, hey, I'm, I'm coming now. Are you, are you ready to go? Like, are we ready to do this? It's just we, we're not as often that you're going to just drop in and have that kind of hospitality. 
to his disciples, Jesus says that if you go to a town, and they don't receive you there, they don't accept you in the town, he says, shake the very dust off their feet. He says, just get rid of the dust on your feet even if they don't accept you. Hospitality, hospitality is so important in Jesus' message. Hospitality is showing love. It's showing tenderness. It's showing compassion to others. Rachel Crabb says, when we are willing to open our homes and our kitchens, our living rooms, and most of all, our hearts to others, God can make exciting things happen. Opening your homes, your kitchen, your living rooms, and your heart to others. That's hospitality, and God uses that. I was thinking about this this week when I started thinking about, like, how do I show hospitality? Where do we show hospitality? And then I realized, I realized that, you know the place where I have had the most impactful and most deep and most life-changing conversations with people when it comes to, to life or faith or any of these things? It's almost exclusively been around a dinner table or a coffee table. Almost exclusively, it's been around a dinner table or a coffee table. It might have been around my dinner table or my coffee table, or it might have been at the Starbucks coffee table or the pub dinner table. But either way, they happen around places where we show hospitality, where we show love. And often, they happen around food. Hospitality is the outward expression of an inner attitude. It is a virtue that erupts from the heart, spilling out toward others. That was Thea Jarvis. The outward expression of an inner attitude a virtue that erupts from the heart, spilling out towards others. That's a great definition of hospitality. So it seems Gaius was showing hospitality. John writes and says great things about him. He says, basically, thank you for inviting people into your home, and they testify to the love which you have had for them. That's what he was doing. He was showing hospitality. And I read this week, and do you know what happened for him showing that hospitality? His reward, or, or what happened as a result of it, he's basically been enshrined in the Bible, his name is forever written down in God's word as someone who we can look to for inspiration and instruction about hospitality. Now, this is exciting because Gaius was not a preacher. Gaius was not a great preacher. He wasn't someone around that was going and doing miracles and performing amazing messages. He wasn't a great evangelist. He wasn't going town to town evangelizing and, and showing missional help. He, he wasn't a doctor. He wasn't someone who was important. He wasn't someone who, who wrote the Gospels. He wasn't Paul, an amazing theologian. He wrote these great dissertations. He didn't do all of those things. Gaius was someone who opened his heart, his kitchen, and his living room to people and showed hospitality. And forever, his name is written down as someone who understood and showed hospitality. And that's amazing. Gaius' name is forever written in the scriptures as a faithful and spiritual person who understood and showed hospitality. I'm almost done, pal. Don't worry. <laughs> it would be great for us to be like Gaius. It would be great to be like Gaius. We've seen three people in John's letter. One, who we should make sure we do not become, and two, who are worth imitating as they imitate Jesus. So we can imitate Demetrius, and we can imitate Gaius as they imitate Christ, as they imitate his life of living out truth and living out love. There's a very famous painting by a very famous person. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this man, Leonardo da Vinci. Perhaps it's one of the most famous paintings ever, and it's certainly one of the most famous Christian paintings. We've all likely heard of it. I'm sure you heard of it. It's called The Last Supper. And this is what it looks like in case you live under a rock and you've never heard of The Last Supper. 
Now, there have been many recreations of the Last Supper. It actually shows up in a lot of movies. There's this, there's this cult idea of showing the Last Supper in movies, trying to sneak it in there as people gather around, and they try to do this kind of thing. There's lots of uh, cultural depictions of it in art. A friend of mine just recently ordered a really cool artwork rendition of this where the Last Supper was painted across six glass skateboards, and it was, it was really cool. Uh, and so it's very famous. It's a very famous painting. And, and all the disciples are in this painting. It's, it's, if you look closely, you can actually see Judas is in there. The third head on Jesus' left-hand side is Judas. And if you look really closely, if you go home and look this up, you look really closely, there's a bag in his hand, and it's said that that contains the silver pieces which he was paid for betraying Christ. So the little baggie is in his right hand there, and it's said that that was it. So there's a lot of detail in this. It's very theological. There's, there's, clear, there's theologians who will debate over who is who, and who they'll fight over the fact that, no, 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 this was such and such a person because he had this theology, and so he would have been four seats to Jesus' right. And there are people that they, they fight over this, but it's very, very famous. What strikes me most about this painting is not the skill of it. I mean, it's nice. But I prefer different art, you know, I, just forsaking a masterpiece here. Like it's, it's nice. I prefer different art, though. It's not the history of it. It's not the, the history and how this, how this painting has survived for so long, and, and it's not how, how it's gotten to us. It's not the theology of it. What strikes me is not the theology of this. What strikes me is the focal point of this painting. Now, at the center of this painting, we see Jesus, and that's obvious. Jesus is the center, and he should be the center. It's intentional, so Jesus should be right there. But Jesus is not actually the only focal point in this painting. He's not the only focal point. There's another one. What is everyone gathered around in this table, or in this painting? It's a table. Everyone is gathered around a table. They're gathered around Jesus, of course, but they are gathered around a table. The table is one of the focal points of this message or of this painting. And it's one of the things that strikes me most. Jesus, in the most famous Christian painting that we really have, is gathered at a dinner table. That's our God, seated at a table, sharing a meal with his friends. That's an essence of Christianity that I think we sometimes forget. We find Jesus at the table more often than we find him any other place, really. We find him sharing a meal with his friend, one of the most common occurrences in the Gospels. Hospitality is key to what Jesus did here. It's an important way in which we show love. Jesus, the fact that Jesus spent so much time at a dinner table or at a table with his friends, the fact that many of Jesus' miracles involve food, the fact that one of our most holy sacraments that we observe in, in all of the global church is literally a meal that we share with others, and the fact that the very last thing Jesus did with all his disciples was he sat there and he shared a meal, Reminds us that in 2020, we need to build more dinner tables than we do fences. We need to build more dinner tables than we do fences. We need to sit down at the table more often. We need to invite others to our table more often. We need to open our hearts, our living rooms, our kitchens, our homes to people. Whenever you do that for the least of these, you do it for him. Whenever you show genuine love to the least of these, you do it for him. It's as if you're doing it for Jesus himself. And so what we need to do today is build more dinner tables and build less fences. Let's pray.